0: morning everybody as Kyle mentioned um, I'm not Kyle Um, my name is Jason Brown and I am not normally up here so bear with me this morning Um, and instead of picking up where Kyle has been with the book of Joseph um, or not the book the story of Joseph um, I was asked to fill in this week uh, so the elders could focus on the elder retreat they had this weekend Um, and we'll be doing something a little different this morning. Um, So as we mentioned, this past Wednesday marked the season, the start of the season of the period of Lent. And for those who choose to observe it, it's traditionally marked with fasting, uh, a time of devotional readings or reading plan, or perhaps acts of charity. Um, And I hope you know that Lent Is not a time to earn God's favor, but it is a time of being insightful and reflective um, to help us turn and fix our eyes on Jesus and to reflect and repent on our utter sinfulness and separation from God. In doing so, we gain a view of the seriousness of sin and the horror of what was truly taking place at the cross, but also a view of the glory of God as shown in the beauty of the cross um, in such a way that we can truly call it Good Friday. And then we understand even more the truly amazing eternal victory that was won on Easter morning. So this morning, we're going to go on that theme and spend some time looking at the seriousness of sin and God's response to transgression. Transgression. Because we do not want to approach Easter thinking that we've got it all together. We don't want to approach God thinking that we don't need a Savior, because our sins are not that bad. So, as we come together this morning, on this first Sunday during Lent, this mini-Easter, we're going to be looking also at how that sin plays a part in God's greater redemptive story and how his response to sin works towards redemption. So, for those of you kids out there that are in Kids Point, can somebody tell me what is sin? All right? Sin, you can say it with me, is anything we think, say, or do that breaks God's law and makes God sad. I forget the motions, but good job, kids. I didn't really hear you, but I know you know it. So... (laughs) Um, And if we really want a good picture of sin, a good example, the Bible's full of examples of it, especially in the people of God in the Old Testament, with Israel and then later the divided kingdom with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. See, these people had seen God's miraculous works up front and personal over and over and over again. They had been brought out of Egypt through the Exodus. They'd seen a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire Um, in the wilderness. They'd heard God on Mount Sinai. They had the tabernacle, the temple, the priests, the law. They had all of this right there. The prophets continued to come to them, yet these people continued to disobey and turn to foreign gods and forsake the God that had brought them out of Egypt. But on our end, you know, we can look back and kind of harshly judge them, be like, man, I would never do that. We kind of presume upon God's grace to cover our sins while we sit back and judge the sins that we read about in the Old Testament. And as a whole, I think our modern context tends to minimize sin. We look at sin as if it's not a big deal because it kind of makes us uncomfortable, if we're honest. So as a result, we kind of get uncomfortable when we read about the idea of God's wrath. Can the love and forgiveness that we read about in the New Testament really be compatible with wrath? I don't know about that. So, when it comes to passages like what we're looking at this morning, we either ignore them, or maybe we read them as hyperbole. Uh, It's just an over-exaggeration. God doesn't really destroy, and he's not really vengeful, right? Or, perhaps we just don't know anything about it at all. So that being said, I'm going to give everybody together the opportunity to open to the table of contents um, because this morning we're going to be looking in the book of Nahum. Um, Nahum is one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament um, in between the book of Micah and Habakkuk. And as we read our passage this morning, I want you to really open your ears to hear this wrath and anger of God for what it is. It's not an exaggeration. So, turn to Nahum chapter 1, and we'll read this together, and then just keep your finger there through most of the morning, because we're going to be going through the chapter. So, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. All right. Nahum 1-1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried from you came one who plotted plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, before we dig into this chapter, we need to set a little bit of context, um, do a little bit of explaining what's going on here, so that you understand what in the world is Nahum talking about. And first, it's important to realize that Nahum is a book of poetry. Um, There are critics out there that look at the the severity of what Nahum says, and describe it as a a vile book, and that it's just awful. But even those critics recognize that it is a work of literary beauty. And with it being written as poetry, there's a lot of poetic devices that are used that we can easily miss or misunderstand. One of which is brevity. Nahum doesn't go into a lot of detail when he's speaking and he jumps around changing pronouns between masculine and feminine and singular and plural and a lot of that, not only do we miss about exactly what he's talking about, but it doesn't translate well into English. Thank you, English. Uh, Repetition is another one, very common in Hebrew poetry. Um, We see that some here. Um, Wordplay also doesn't always translate well into English. Uh, But then another one that we're going to look at a lot this morning is that Nahum uses a lot of allusions or references. He's always alluding to other prophets, to Psalms, to the Torah, um, and he's also alluding to Assyrian theology and culture. Um, He's about a generation after Isaiah, so he makes a lot of references to the prophet Isaiah and his prophecies. Um, So we're going to look at some of those allusions and how that builds up what he's saying here. Um, so, verse 1 kind of sets the stage. It introduces um, Nineveh, Nahum, and this place called Elkosh. Now, Nineveh is primarily known for slapping people with fish, um, <laughs> if you're familiar with Veggie Tales. Um, if you're not familiar with Veggie Tales, it is most commonly associated with actually the book of Jonah, another minor prophet a few generations prior to this book. Um, Jonah went into the city, rather reluctantly, preached a five-word sermon, and they repented. Truly an incredible story, but here we see it didn't last very long. God is now coming to exact his vengeance on Nineveh. Now, historically, Nineveh was dedicated to the Assyrian goddess Ishtar, a fertility god. Um, And then when Nineveh became the capital of Assyria, It also became the main presence for the Assyrian god Asher, who was a war god. He was the head of the Assyrian pantheon, like way up here, way above all the other gods, their primary god. Um, And as a result, the Assyrians were a violent people dedicated to vicious war and empire building, unlike the world had yet seen. And the Assyrian empire was at its height when Nahum is writing. So at a high level, we see that the book of Nahum is a prophecy about the downfall of Assyria, the downfall of Nineveh, and the downfall of the god Asher. Now you may be thinking, what does a prophecy about a nation and a city that no longer exists have to do with me? Or even the destruction of this enemy of God's people have to do with the sin that we're talking about related to Israel. Well, the answer is a lot. So I will try to be brief. Um, We'll see. Uh, But we're going to spend some time looking at that this morning. And the rest of verse 1 seems like just an introduction. Nahum of Elkosh. But it actually gives us a clue into what's going on here. And we don't really know anything about Nahum, except that he wrote this book, and he's from Elkosh. And we know, well, nothing about Elkosh. But what we do know is that in this context... And still in much of Middle Eastern um, Eastern cultures, names have meaning. Nahum means compassion or comfort. And Elkosh means God is severe. So verse 1 kind of sets this theological theme for the book, and it is very much still applicable for us today. God is both severe and compassionate. And these are our two main points for the morning as we go through Nahum chapter 1, that God is as severe as sin demands, and he is compassionate, he is as compassionate as the cross shows him to be. And as we develop these two points, we're going to be looking at three topics from chapter 1, wrath, refuge, and restoration. So, a little bit more on context before we jump into this. We're coming in um, well past the point where um, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Um, The northern kingdom of Israel had sinned greatly, and God had raised up Assyria to destroy them. So this is past that. The northern kingdom has been conquered, taken into exile by Assyria. uh, But Assyria hadn't stopped there. They just kept growing more and more, expanding their empire. And they had come and laid siege to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and that's kind of during Hezekiah's reign. Um, Angel of the Lord destroys the army. Great story, not for this morning. Um, but in this, the current king of Judah is King Manasseh. And he is one of the worst kings in Judah's history. And under his reign, Judah's sin has, had grown and exceeded that of her sister in the north and even had, had even exceeded that of all the pagans around her. He took the worst of the worst and led Israel into great sin. And being that he wasn't following God, he needed protection from all the enemies around, unlike his father Hezekiah. So he um, and Judah became a vassal state to Assyria. They had to pay exorbitant tributes. and really were under pressure from all this stuff that they owed to Assyria but in return Assyria offered protection now we know from historical documents from Assyria that this vassal relationship was a covenantal relationship in order to become protectorate of Assyria you had to not only pledge your loyalty to the Assyrian king but you also had to pledge your loyalty the Assyrian gods. And much like God's covenant had curses, there were great curses for violating the covenant um, that was created between Assyria and their um, vassal states. So we find ourselves here now that God's wrath is coming for Judah and their great sin, but it is here now for Assyria. So let's look at verse 2. In verse 2, you see three pairs all being ascribed to God. You see that God is jealous and avenging. He's avenging and wrathful. And then you see vengeance and wrath. Um, So you see this repetition, which we mentioned earlier, is very common in Hebrew poetry. But usually it's just doubles. This idea of like rhyming in thought Um, The second one is there to reinforce the first. But three in a row is much less common. And it is something that is there to put great emphasis on what is being said. Think of the angels in the throne room saying, Holy, holy, holy. Three in a row is very important. And here we have three sets of doubles. Doubles so I think we should probably take notice and see what's going on. But let me ask you this. Does such an emphasis on God's wrath make you uncomfortable? How is this Old Testament wrath compatible with New Testament love and mercy? Is it even? Maybe if we like soften it and explain it away as like an exaggeration or maybe the whole thing in this book since it's poetry is just kind of It's poetic. It's not really what's going to happen, right? Maybe then we're a little more comfortable with this view of God. But if we believe, and I hope we do, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, we ought not do that. We can't avoid who God reveals himself to be. We can't avoid the aspects of his character that we don't understand or that we are uncomfortable with. And we can look at the Old Testament, um, all these people making carved images or cast idols, um, we can kind of look on them with disdain, thinking that we are so much better. While at the same time, we can find ourselves ignoring these aspects of God that he reveals in the Old Testament. And we kind of reshape him to fit our ideas and our level of comfort. I came across this quote that says, "...whether the idol is fashioned with tools... Or theology, it's still a false God. Lord, we ask that you would reveal and convict us of where we reshape your revealed character to fit our ideas, our human standards, our comfort, our convenience, our agendas, and bring us to repentance. So, if wrath and vengeance are something we're seeing as true, How does that work with the ideas that we see all over the New Testament of love your neighbor and love your enemy? Well, one, neither of those are exclusive to the Old or the New Testament. Um, But first, the phrase that is used here, that God is jealous, is this allusion to God's covenant. This particular phrase is only used six times in the Old Testament, and we see it in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Joshua. All six of those times have two things in common. One, God is either establishing or renewing his covenant with Israel. And two, God is giving them a dire warning not to worship foreign gods. So Nahum's here prophesying the downfall of Assyria while still poking at Judah saying, hey, don't forget that you are just as guilty. And God is still wrathful. And so too, as we read, We ought not forget our own guilt and keep that in perspective. Second, um, Nahum is ascribing this enacting of the wrath, this vengeance to God alone. Not to Judah, not to um, the king, not to his people as a whole, not to the church. In the New Testament, where it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, that's a quote actually from the Old Testament. These things do carry a cross. It's all one story. Um, but in Leviticus nineteen, the quote comes from verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your neighbor or against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's not up to us to enact vengeance. We are called to love our neighbor. And where does this come from? How can we do this? Well, it says right here, I am the Lord. God being God, God who is wrathful and who is loving, is the root of our power to choose love over vengeance. Romans 12, Paul reminds us that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So feed your enemy. Overcome evil with good. See, we can forgive and love in the face of evil and injustice and even those little things that really annoy us because we know that we have a just God whose wrath will be satisfied. This empowers our love and forgiveness because we know that we don't have to worry about sorting things out. But it also, it empowers God's love towards us. Because God, without wrath and vengeance, is a God whose jealousy is shallow. But God's love is fiercely jealous. And as a result, it, is require, it requires exclusivity of our hearts, and there is no place for our passions to wander. God's wrath burns against anyone or anything that would draw us away from him. If God didn't care about our affections, or the things that would jeopardize his place in our hearts, he wouldn't love us. If God could watch us suffer injustice without punishing evil, will he really love us? If God works for his glory, <clears throat> uh, if, if God works for his glory and love that lacks jealousy and vengeance, um, uh, Sorry. if God's love lacks jealousy and vengeance then it's a concept without any passion or power behind it it's apathy i.e. love without action that's masquerading as virtuous love God's love moves him to action to restore and safeguard his love for his glory and we look at the Old Testament and we're like hey you know seriously guys come on I mean, after all, I mean, how could you claim to love God and then put your trust in Assyria? All right? But are we not just as guilty? We claim to love God, but put our trust in our careers, our family. We worship our phones, our social media, our comforts, our finances. Lord, we ask that you would reveal and convict us of things in our lives that compete for your love and your place in our hearts. May your vengeance preserve us for your glory alone. <clears throat> Nahum begins God's wrath. Uh, begins talking about God's wrath here, but before we move on, he gives us one additional allusion to help us make sense of God's wrath and why, um, why this is part of God's character. See, the language that he's using here is similar to in an allusion to Isaiah 24, Isaiah 1:24, In a passage about Judah's transgressions and the coming vengeance, God proclaims, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. See, sin isn't just bad because it breaks God's law, but it makes him sad. It grieves God. He desires for this restoration of relationship with his people. And he moves against sin for his glory and to bring comfort to himself. So we're moving on now then to verse 3. We've seen that Judah is greatly sinful and that God exercises wrath against sin. So we might ask, why just destroy Assyria? Why not destroy Judah? Why not both? Why not just wipe the earth clean from sin? Well, The first part of verse 3 makes it clear, again, with another allusion, but this one might be a little bit more familiar to you. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This is an allusion to Exodus 34. Um, This comes right after the episode of great sin of the golden calf in Israel's history. Um, And it's God revealing himself to Moses. Moses. But if you look at it, it's actually a quote from Numbers 14, which is alluding to Exodus 34, um, where Moses is recalling what God had said about himself. And Numbers 14 covers Israel's great rebellion in the wilderness. After the spies came back, gave the report on the Canaanites, and they're like, whoa, we can't do this. Uh, Let's find something else. And then they rebelled against God. And both of these events are high water or really low water marks the sin of Israel and both of them involved a prayer of intercession from Moses Now, neither prayer affected a full pardon because Moses their intercessor was himself imperfect and we'll come back to that but here again in the book of Nahum we we find evidence of Israel exchanging the truth of God for a lie exchanging God's protection for Assyrian vassalage Exchanging God Himself for the Assyrian God, Asher. <clears throat> so, how could Israel, with such a history of seeing God at work, just so blatantly turn from Him again and again? Their sin was so grievous. Glad we don't do that. <laughs> but, as we've said, that's not true. We do. We are just as guilty, if not even more, because we ourselves, we have the fullness of the Bible. We have the gospel as shown through Christ and the cross, and we have the Holy Spirit as a continual counselor. But if we don't recognize the seriousness and power of sin, we can tend to minimize our own sin. And we can kind of think nothing of it, because it's a lot easier to look at the carved images and say, Man, that's really bad. We think that we can handle it. It's like, ah, it's not too bad. I can I got this. We cannot be trusted to evaluate our own sin honestly. We ought not pass judgment on the sins of Israel and then presume upon God's grace to cover ours as we turn and love the gods of our culture. We need God to reveal our sin to us through his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and through the community of his people, the church. If we don't see the seriousness and severity of our sin we don't see our need for a savior. And like Israel, we are sinful. So too, like Israel, we need a mediator. And in Christ, we have a perfect mediator. There is no other. So, the next couple passages, or sections, we're gonna try and move a little bit quicker through. Verses kind of 2 through 8 are a bunch of allusions that are um, pointing to events from Israel's past, pointing to and mocking Assyria. Um, You see like the whirlwind and a storm. They kind of harken back to Job where God demonstrates his glory while also demonstrating the frailty of humanity. The next part talks about the clouds are the dust of his feet. This is making fun of Assyria. You see, the Assyrian army was known for being massive, and when they rolled up on you, a giant cloud of dust was seen well before you could see their chariots. You knew they were coming, and that was kind of their calling card, and it invoked sheer terror. I can kind of see Nahum kind of sitting here laughing to himself as he writes this. He's like, you think your dust clouds are scary, Assyria? Oh, my God, he's coming on the very clouds themselves. These massive storm clouds, they are announcing the arrival of my God. So you better be on guard. Nahum goes on to reference the crossing of the Red Sea during the Exodus and the crossing of the Jordan when entering the Promised Land, both of which the waters were split and on dry ground. When crossing the Red Sea, the Egyptian army followed them in and was Destroyed when the sea collapsed in on them. And in entering the promised land, crossing the Jordan marked the start of the conquest of Canaan. So he's saying, he's like, My God has done this before. You are nothing to him. He has conquered all those that are around here. And we see too the structure of the poetry in this section is also alluding to Psalm 9. Um, where David himself is speaking of God's justice and the rebuke of the nations, and he's praying, he's saying, Lord, blot them out from history forever. And similarly, we see that Nineveh was in complete and utter ruins after God's judgment, to the point where it was not even discovered until 1845, nearly over 2,000 years later. Now we come to verse 7. Now we kind of skipped and talked about 8 already, but going back to verse 7, we get our first picture of this real good news. You see, Nahum, despite prophesying the destruction of their enemy, has not really been kind to Judah so far. He does a lot of finger pointing and reminding them of their sins, but here we find refuge. Refuge. Lest we fall into the trap in the midst of all this vengeance and wrath of thinking that God is not good, he reminds us that God is good. It's who he is. His judgment and wrath is not inconsistent with his goodness. And God, he is here to intervene despite the sinful state of Judah. Lest Judah think that they can earn this on their merit. He provides this refuge not because of their merit, but because they take refuge in him. Judah had forsaken God, had violated the terms of his covenant, and had, left, had nothing left on which to claim God's protection. Mere mortal man cannot endure God's wrath by merit or aptitude. So this begs the question for us, what do we need refuge from? Last time I checked, I haven't looked outside recently, There was some fog this morning, but I have not seen the dust clouds of the Assyrian army approaching Greenville. I don't know that Babylonians have laid siege to Rockwall or that the Romans are taking over Dallas. To my knowledge, I could be wrong. In our context here, this physical enemy is largely absent But we need deliverance not from this evil that is outside. We need deliverance from this evil that is inside. Matthew 15, verses 19 through 20 says it. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus gives us even more insight into that in the Sermon on the Mount, saying like, it's not that you murder somebody, it's that you even have anger against them. We are a sinful people. But in God, we find the stronghold of refuge at the cross. And only at the cross. Because at the cross, God's wrath is fully satisfied. He is pouring out every bit of his wrath that is due us on his own son, the righteous Jesus. And our sin is dealt with. Because those who take refuge in Jesus are united to him, and his righteousness becomes your righteousness. So we got this little picture of good news, and we kind of get back to a little bit more judgment. Verses 9 through the first part of 12 kind of go through, and they talk about, um, it gets really confusing The pronouns are switching all over the place and never identified. That's part of this brevity that is being used here. Um, But essentially, he's pronouncing judgment on Assyria. And he's judging them by the same measure which they would use for a vassal state that defied them. Because God had raised up Assyria to enact judgment on Israel in the north, Assyria is acting like a vassal state to God. But Assyria didn't stop there. They kept going, and they became arrogant and never gave credit to God. Isaiah tells us that the king of Assyria boasted that by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And God is going to judge them the same way they would judge someone that uh, forsook them, which is that he would make a complete end to the people The cities, their gods, their sacred places, and their fields. This was done by Assyria and likewise for God because the prideful rebellion demands vengeance and to send a message. And three, he does this to destroy their ability to rise up again. And this is true. Assyria never came back. Nineveh was laying in ruins for thousands of years before it was even discovered. In verses 10 through 12, it jumps around between a bunch of different characters, likely alluding to Assyria's warriors, their army, um, possibly Nineveh itself, um, possibly the goddess Ishtar, um, and then this worthless counselor um, that's either somebody that's giving bad advice to Judah to follow Assyria, Someone in Assyria that's very prominent, or referring back to um, Hezekiah with um, the counselor that was shouting out insults to God at the wall when they were laying siege to Jerusalem, or it's possible that that is reference to um, an evil spirit. But regardless of that, Nahum is referring this judgment to the evil that is in and that is uh, within Assyria and the evil of Assyria itself. He describes that they will be incapacitated like thorns in a deserted field, like drunkards or like dried stubble ready to be burned, and that they will be cut down and pass away. Finally, as we get to the last section, we see this good news of restoration that is here. The second part of verse 12 switches to addressing Judah, and starts this good news to close out the chapter. See, God had afflicted Judah under Assyria, but he's saying this affliction will be no more. Those seeking refuge in Christ are no longer a subject of wrath, but they are adopted as sons. And Hebrews 12 reminds us that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he disciplines his son. Judah is facing discipline. And wrath and discipline are not the same. See, wrath is there to bring complete and utter destruction. Discipline works for our sanctification and the restoration of our relationship with our Father. God is working to restore Judah. It doesn't happen now. In fact, they themselves go into exile later. But he is faithful to a remnant and restores them in time. Lord, we ask that that you discipline us in love as your children and that your refining fire may cleanse us not just from the effects of sin, but from sin itself. We ask that you would sour the appeal of sin and teach us to hate our sin. Verse 13, God breaks the yoke and the bonds of his people. Now here, Nahum's alluding to Assyrian culture. Something that um, we miss here, but it was very common and actually unique um, within Assyria to depict the vassal states as oxen under the yoke of the master, the king of Assyria. And to break this yoke would be to break this covenant um, contractual agreement they have for protection and servitude with Assyria. And that breaking of the covenant would then invoke a multitude of curses. And Assyria was extremely creative in making awful, terrifying curses. There's documents out there that are not fun to read for um, the curses that were proclaimed for these others. We don't have an exact copy of the agreement with Judah, but we get an idea. So God is promising here, not only am I going to destroy the armies, but I'm going to free Judah and free, them, free you from the spiritual entanglements that come with breaking the covenant you've made with Assyria. See, Galatians 3 tells us that we too are under a curse. But there has been a transfer of curses. Our curse has been transferred to Jesus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, humanity has been cursed since Adam and Eve first sinned and God rendered judgment. And Christ has become a curse on our behalf to restore the relationship rift created by sin. Verse 14 really puts a nail in the coffin of the enemy here. Speaking to a singular male, uh, he says that your carved metal images will be cut off, and your name shall be cut off. God is making your grave. This new character identified as a singular male is later identified in chapter 3 as the king of Assyria, but it could also be interpreted as the king Asher. Um, And there's other evidence in chapter 3 that this is pointing to not just the king, but to the god Asher himself. See, God frees us not just from physical danger, but also from spiritual forces that are acting against us. And it came true. When Nineveh fell, Asher fell never to be worshipped voluntarily again. The God with the insatiable appetite for war brutally died himself when Assyria died. And we know that we still have an enemy that is at work around us. And we'll mention that in a second, but God is at work both physically and spiritually for our restoration and preservation. So we get to verse 15, the good news has finally arrived. Think about it, if you're a guard sitting on the city wall in Jerusalem and you're just living in terror, waiting for these dust clouds of the approaching Assyrian army coming to lay siege to your home again, then one day you see this scrawny, sweaty guy frantically running and yelling, waving his arms, coming to the wall and you're like, great, here it is, here we go, Assyria is right around the corner. Then as he gets closer, you start to hear what he's saying. You don't really believe it. And closer still, closer, and finally you're like, I'm pretty sure I know what he's saying, but I don't know if I believe it. He's saying, peace! Nineveh is no more. God is victorious over Assyria. God is victorious over Asher. Isaiah has a similar passage, and here he calls the feet of the one the messenger. He says, they are beautiful. And beautiful they are indeed. See, in Christ, we have a better messenger who's bringing a better message that is true and eternal. Christ brings a message of perfect peace because he has fully appeased the wrath of God that was due us. He provides refuge as a better intercessor than Moses to truly remove our sin Christ restores his people to right-standing with God, imparting his righteousness on them and taking their curse. And he defeats and pursues the enemy, not just Ishtar or Asher, but on Good Friday he defeated and pursued the enemy on the cross, pursued and defeated death itself. And he protects and frees us, not just from physical harm, but from spiritual harm as well. Asher is no longer a threat, but Satan is prowling around like a hungry lion ready to devour. Jesus' feet are truly beautiful. But Genesis tells us that his heel will be bruised, and Isaiah says that he was pierced for our transgressions. And we know that on the cross this happened, but it is by his wounds that we are healed. And in that, that bruised heel... Is truly beautiful, but not like a model. You know, he's not a foot model. That would be weird. (laughs) But his foot, his feet are beautiful, like one who has been hard at work. See, on, on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet so that they would be clean. But we don't see that his feet were ever washed. See, he knew that he had to get his feet dirty in order to cleanse sinners. His feet are beautifully covered in serpent goo because he has been crushing the head of the serpent, destroying the enemy, the accuser, Satan. This peace that he proclaims is a restored peace. The enemy is gone. The debt is paid. The sickness is cured. The curse is reversed. Death is overcome. And the relationship between God and man is how it is meant to be. So what do we do now? Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. We worship. You see this here. You see this in the Exodus when Moses first goes to Pharaoh. He's like, hey, all we want to do is go out into the wilderness and keep our feasts to the Lord and worship him. See, sin keeps us from worship from giving God the glory due Him. In Christ, being healed from our sin, we are free to worship and enjoy God as we were meant to be. Pray with me. God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you are eternal and unchanging. We ask that you reveal, convince, and convict us of our sin. May it grieve us... even just a fraction of the grief that you feel, the weight of the wrath that is due us. Lord, we ask that you not relent your wrath, but that you draw us into your refuge as you graciously pour out your wrath on your own son. For your jealousy will not relent, pursuing our enemy to the depths and destroying anything external or internal, physical or spiritual, that would diminish or compete with your glory or seduce and lure away your people to sin. In our brokenness, may we find peace in Christ, crucified and risen, and live in that restored relationship with you now as we look to the fullness of restoration that is yet to come. May our worship be pure and undefiled for your glory alone. Amen.